Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tyran New. Uh, we're at New Vineyards in Newburgh. It is Friday, July 23rd, uh, 2021. Tyran, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, first question and biggest question, as you know, is yeah. why wine? Okay. Um, it, it was more of an evolution rather than an epiphany. Um, I um, grew up in a very academic environment. I grew up in university campus and um, my father was an academic, my uncles are academic. I did PhD in fluid mechanics. Um, was, would have probably you know, worked in research institution, university. Instead, I went into investment banking. Um, and without, sort of, without knowing what it is, without thinking much about it, I did it for 12 years. And I stopped in um, 2006. Uh, had time on my hands and just started reading about things. And that's when I actually started reading about wine. Now, wine was a part of my life even before then, but not much more so than for most consumers. Um, obviously, sort of like having nice wine and, you know, good food and with good company is one of the most civilized things, you know, in life. And, um, but it was only when I started reading about it that it, it occurred to me that the whole breadth of subjects, associated subjects sort of from viticulture to what goes on in the winery to the business of it, uh, the history of it, um, and then sort of the philosophical aesthetics, right? So what is a good wine, right? All of that, you know, there's a community that sort of discusses that with such passion, right? And, and it's just sort of endlessly fascinating. Um, there is so much that you can sort of study and do research on and each, you know, questions leads to more questions, right? So it's more sort of going back to school, really. I mean, this is an antidote to investment banking, right? So I had an academic background in investment banking, and now I'm back in school. And it just sort of evolved from that. I, I did the WSET thing. Um, and I, I think when I sort of finished, when I started level three, um, I wrote to Jancis Robinson, the English wine writer. And I said, you know, I like wine, but I have no idea what to do with it. And can I, while I'm working it out, work on your website, right? Or just help an intern. And I was in London then, and she just basically said, sure, why don't you come over to my house and we'll have a chat, which is the most, I've never met her, right? And that, that, that's a sort of a consistent theme throughout this process. It's just people just so willing to help. If, you, if you're keen and you're sincere, the, the, the industry as a whole is very willing to help, um, which, is, which is great and refreshing. And so I went to see her. We went through the options, and I think the conclusion was I should just sort of continue down the sort of diploma, master of wine, the whole path. And um, at the time, she was working on a book called American Wine with um, a lady called Linda Murphy. <clears throat> and she just basically said, well, why, if, since you have to be in the US, why don't you just help her do research for the book, right? And which is basically what I did. So I did some desk research, but we also traveled in uh, Virginia, New York State, and California. Interestingly, I'm not Oregon, which she did, I didn't. 
Um, and that's when it sort of really drew me more into the industry because you know, we had access to winemakers that you know, normal consumers won't have. And, the highlight probably was lunch with Paul Draper at Ridge, right? Just sort of him, Linda, and me, and just sort of talking about everything about wine. So there was this sort of slow kind of evolution of just pulling me more and more um, into the industry, but again, without sort of a clear view of what I should do next. And then I was doing the diploma. Um, I'd started doing some more practical stuff in Bordeaux, uh, in, in Australia. I ended up in Tasmania, and that's sort of when it sort of clicked that maybe the thing to do is to just buy a plot of land and try and grow grapes and and make wine. I mean, I think you know Tasmania was was special. It was a very sort of pristine um, place, and it it resonated in a way that bizarrely enough, when I went to Bordeaux or Burgundy or Barolo or Champagne, it never sort of quite did. I mean, I loved all of those places, and obviously in California, and, but it was Tasmania because it was just a little bit wilder, where the wine industry was a smaller part of the place whereas if you go to sort of like burgundy i mean that place is wine i mean that it's wine right whereas if you go to the uh the tasmania it's a small part of it and it's still new it's still pristine um and that really resonated with me the sort of communing with nature part of it um and that's sort of and then and i had to be in the u.s otherwise i would have been in tasmania but i had to be in the u.s and so i started looking around for not quite sort of the, the tasmania of the u.s but sort of something similar the list is short and very quickly, you know, it's, it's Oregon, so sort of how I ended up here. So, kind of a meandering answer to your question, but it was an evolution. There wasn't, there wasn't a moment where, yeah, I, I love wine and I want to do wine. It was just this process of just slowly getting here. So many questions about that answer. We'll come, we'll, we'll come back in a second. Let's talk about life before wine a little bit. You okay. mentioned a little bit about your upbringing. Tell me, yep. uh, where were you born and raised? And tell me about your education. Sure. I was, I was born uh, in London, in the UK. Um, but then I went, uh, we left London when I was about three. So my father took this job in university in Singapore. Um, and that's where I grew up, in the U Nanyang University, in the university campus in Singapore. And then I finished um, high school uh, in Singapore and then went uh, to the UK for university um, and then did aeronautical engineering, did fluid mechanics uh, and then investment banking. Yeah. Tell me about that, the choice of, of choice of specialty, what engineering and mechanics, wh why and, and what was the plan with oh, that degree? I, yeah, I know my, interestingly enough, my father was, and my father was, uh, did social science, but my Literally, I've, I've, all my uncles did either maths or engineering. Like it was just, you know, I grew up just with maths and engineering. It, there was no options really. Um, and um, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> so did, did aeronautical engineering and uh, and fluid mechanics. And yeah, and it, it was it was coming it was coming out of um, Cambridge where. I think I just did too much of it, right? I just did too much the academic thing. I just, I realized there was, there was an outside world and just went, you know, completely the opposite direction. If, it, if it's the opposite direction and just went out and did it. There's no history of that in my family. Like nobody understood why I made a decision or, but I think it was, you know, again, trying to do something different from what I've been doing for a long, long time, yeah. So when you, when you made that decision to do something different, tell me about how investment banking became the thing you did and, and tell me about kind of the entry, entry into that. Um, 
it was it was the time of um, uh, huge deregulation in the industry. So in London, New York, and I'm sure all the other financial centers, um, there was just this sort of wave of, of recruitment going through the universities, right? Just like, if you can count, you can get a job in investment banking kind of thing. You know? it's like, so, and they were very aggressive in recruiting. Uh, and, and I think that's sort of how I, I fell into it. So like, you, you know, at, at the time it felt like, you know, if, if you have a vaguely sort of scientific or mathematical degree, you will be courted by management consultants and investment bankers. That's it, like all over the campus in all the major universities. Um, and that's sort of how I, I got into it. I knew very little about it. Yeah. So tell me about your time there. Obviously, you said you spent, mm -hmm. spent about a decade or so in it. Tell me about 12 years. Tell me about that time. Um, I, uh, uh, most of it was spent in Europe. Um, I was based in London and um, I, it was, uh, I was doing sort of um, IPOs and mergers and acquisitions and initially equity research and then IPOs, mergers and acquisitions um, and very quickly focused on the sector which was the telecommunication sector so working with companies in that sector uh, and pretty much across Europe so I was traveling a lot in sort of Germany, Eastern Europe, France, Portugal, so which was, there was a lot of traveling which is great I mean a lot of what shaped me and my views about wine comes from the, that period of time of traveling around the world. And then the second part of that career, um, I was actually in Asia, where um, the final stint was, was um, in China, mm -hmm. in, in Beijing, Goldman Sachs. Um, yeah, so I think, I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, yeah. What did you enjoy about the work? Um, mm, that's a good question. What did I enjoy about it? Uh, the the travel, definitely, right? Having the opportunity for someone to pay you to travel around the world is nice. Um, I think the travel, the the sense that um, misguided as it may seem, that you are doing things as the front and center of what's going on in the world, right? There's there's there's, there's a there's a real kind of, you, th you feel like you're connected to the real world and you are doing things every day that affects it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then actually, although again, maybe may, people may find this hard to believe, but um, the professionalism of it, you know, it's just the, the, the place I worked and there is a um, very kind of pragmatic uh, end result driven process that is very much structured on being incredibly um, professional and focused on detail, right? That kind of uh, environment where, you know, the, the work is really intense, but everyone involved is super professional um, in terms of getting things done. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, it, it didn't seem rare at the time, but now I know that's actually quite rare. That's actually <laughs> quite, quite rare. So looking back, I think that's probably one of the, mm -hmm. um, the most, the, the bit that I miss most, yeah. And what, what, why was it time to leave? What, what, what made you decide to leave and do something different? It, it became, goodness, you're actually the best person to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because it seems so obvious. Nobody asked it because to everyone else, they think the answer is obvious, but actually it's not as obvious as it seems. Um, I think it's just that if you do it long enough, the lifestyle gets to you, right? And, and um, the, it's, uh, you know, at, at some point, um, you seem to, to start with the traveling was great. And then at the latter stages of it, you realize my life evolves around airports, right? And at that point, it doesn't feel right anymore. Um, you know, it's when all your shopping is done at airports. That's when you're <laughs> sort of like, hang on, I haven't been to a shop other than Heathrow Airport. That can't be right. Um, so I think the pace of it and, and the lifestyle reached a point where unhealthy is probably the wrong word, but I felt like it should be, I should be doing something different with my life now. You know? So you mentioned you mentioned Jancis as kind of a big a big part of yeah, you, as, you start, as, as, to the start of it. Yeah, you yeah. started learning wine. So tell me yeah. about that initial meeting and 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 what what you kind of came away from that thinking. Did you did you start to think that wine might be something you were interested in doing, or or was it more of a like, oh, this is a kind of a next adventure I might take? Um, it's definitely the latter. So at, at that stage, there was definitely no idea at all how one could possibly make a living out of this. It just—it really—I I was still in the mode of just really enjoying doing research and and studying and learning more about it. And and it wasn't, there wasn't. Um, she she never sort of said, okay, this is. In, in fact, actually, she probably said, if you're thinking about making a living out of it, don't do it. Right. So, so actually, along the way, lots of people gave advice along the lines of, if you're thinking of making a living out of it, please don't do this. Do something <laughs> else. Right. There's a. Um, but she knew, she, almost everyone also knew that that would almost inevitably fall on death year. And nobody takes that advice. People just keep plowing on. Um, but she, it was, it was it, what was great talking to her was obviously you know, her background and experience, right? Mm -hmm. just her understanding of everything about the industry. So to be able to be a sounding board and said, okay, this is where I am now. Where do you think I can go? And what do you think, what paths, right? So, I think the bottom line, not to shoot me discreet, but I think the bottom line was that she was saying, give yourself more time and explore more before you make the decision, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are no, to the point that you shouldn't make a living out of this, there are no obvious path that is the right thing and the most obvious thing and the greatest thing, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an industry that's so driven by passion that it's very personal, right? Each person has its own reason why they want to pursue it, whatever the direction they want to, do, to pursue it in. And I think, um, yeah, so we came out of I, probably the, probably the biggest decision point coming out of that was: do I continue down the WSAT, you know, master wine route, mm -hmm. <clears throat> or do I go to UC Davis, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and because at the time the Linfield thing didn't exist, <laughs> right? So, the, <laughs> so, so was, it, was it do I go to Adelaide, you know, Australia or California and do a more really really technical thing, or do I continue to do the WSAT thing? And we decided partly because of my background, um, that maybe that's a, a, a better direction to take and take as far as you want, right? You can do the whole master wine thing. And, um, and then, you know, as part of the giving myself more time thing to do this research project with, with Linda Murphy in the, in the US, yeah. So let's talk about that research project a little bit. Obviously, you're, you're educated in wine at this point in kind of a, t a textbook WSET way. And you've and you've been a wine consumer. Tell me about what's different about going to wine country and, and meeting the people in it and, and starting to research from that perspective. What what did it change about your kind of mindset about wine? What did you learn? 
Um, it's uh, well, a lot, um, but in, a, in, a, in an unstructured way. So um, one of the, I, I, again, this is before Linfield has this course, but I think <laughs> the, one, of the great, one of the great things about WSCT is that it provides um, an, an overall framework right, on all aspects of wine. Right. Nothing is, you, you don't really dig deeply into any aspect of it, but it gives you the whole picture. Like, you know, the range of subjects I talked about earlier on, every single part of that is addressed in WSET, even if it just touches on it. Mm -hmm. So you have this sort of framework. And then as I went through the process of traveling around the world, meeting winemakers, you start filling in pieces of it. So it's like a jigsaw thing, right? So there isn't, you know, I didn't meet this person and they answered the question of on, on everything and why. No, it was like this person I learned this, and that person I learned that, you know? Like, probably uh, an example of that is, uh, although it's not part of that project, but um, when I went to Burgundy, I had a chance to meet uh, Mounier, Jacques-Frédéric Mounier, and we talked about sort of organic viticulture biodynamics. It seems obvious after he said it, but at the time it was like, like a light bulb moment, right? And she was, he was basically saying, he said the problem of, with organic farming is that people kind of don't understand what the issue is. It's, it's about how toxic a spray is, right? Not whether it's organic or not. And so the problem with the organic movement is that the label organic means more now than the thing that you are spraying. And they are, it is not a given that anything which is, you know, synthetic man-made is by definition worse than something which isn't, mm -hmm. right? On a case-by-case -case basis, you have to address the issue what is toxic and what isn't, and how toxic, what, ex what is the exact chemical issue that you're dealing with? And his problem is that that has gone out of the window, right? And, and there was an example of some pest or disease in France where the organic solution to that is a lot worse to the people working in the vineyard than the synthetic you know, solution, but then because they have to be organic certified, they have to use that, right? So he has huge issue with that. You know, that and again, obvious, right? But at the time, if you are just a consumer who's learning about wine, you know, you have the labels, biodynamic, organic, conventional, and you discuss why that is bad, why this is good. Well, it, it's more subtle than that, mm -hmm. right? You have to think about it more accurately and more precisely. So there are lots of moments like that, and that stayed with me because that completely transformed the way I think about you know, farming and why this place looks like this place now. And, um, and I think, you know, you know, talking to Paul Draper about, you know, America's role in, in winemaking, about how to make a world-class wine being true to America without just sort of thinking about always trying to be France kind of thing, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how he achieved it. You know, that is very inspiring for someone who is going to do something not in France, but in, in America. Mm -hmm. um, and there are just sort of endless examples of that, down to you know choice of barrels and you know um, you know choice of pruning shears and choice of just every every little sort of nuance um, involved in the process. Each person I would have learned something from them, mm -hmm. and then you know you have this sort of jigsaw and you just the pieces just sort of start sort mm -hmm. of filling in. So you mentioned all the, all the places. So you mentioned Bordeaux and Burgundy and Australia and Tasmania, and then of course coming to the U.S. and seeing yeah. some of the wine regions here. Tell me, as you were traveling, uh, what were some of the, the biggest differences between the places, and, and what were the what were the things you saw that you thought, you know, when I do this, I want to make sure this is part of part of my project, or you know, if I, if I ever do this, this is gonna be this is gonna be something I def definitely do, or, or definitely don't want to do. 
Um, what are the biggest? I think I think the biggest I think the biggest difference, and the most obvious one, um, is in places like Bordeaux, uh, and actually, well, in places like Bordeaux, definitely in Burgundy, the the, the wine culture is deep, right? It's centuries old. Um, although, and and that in itself means people carry themselves through the industry in a different way. The, 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 the weight of history is something that's both helpful, um, obviously, mm -hmm. but may, may be a barrier, right? But, but you see new generations of you know, Burgundian winemakers who go and work in New Zealand and Australia precisely because they need to sort of break away from just, you know, my great-grandfather did this, so I'm going to do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the sort of the biggest difference. Whereas if you're in Australia and New Zealand, you're already in Australia and New Zealand, right? You don't have that weight of legacy. And then you have the opposite problem saying, hang on, the Burgundians know what they're doing. Let's go there and find out what they know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think travel has, has, has made places, the, the differences become less so because the younger generation are traveling in both directions. Mm -hmm. But before that, I think the, the, the legacy of, of what Burgundy and Bordeaux and Champagne is has an impact on everyday life in a way that not quite in California and definitely not in Oregon, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can do whatever you want, right? <laughs> and there is no kind of my great-grandfather did this. Mm -hmm. There is no great-grandfather who did this, you know. Mm -hmm. Is there? Is there great-grandfather? No, right? Even Jason Lett is second generation, mm -hmm. right? There may be a third generation now. So my grandfather did this, <laughs> right? But there's no my great-grandfather did this. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's the biggest difference. I don't think there are any sort of specific things like, you know, I shouldn't use this brand of, you know, thing or I shouldn't use that tractor or something. I don't think there's anything very specific. It's just the overall environment. When you go to Burgundy, you feel it. You feel how important wine is to the whole place in a way that I don't think you feel um, anywhere else that I've been to, mm -hmm. right? Or sh in Champagne as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you feel the weight of the industry. Um, but, you know, you don't do that anywhere else. I think that's the biggest difference I can think of. There's great wine everywhere. There are great winemakers everywhere. There are bad wine everywhere, right? Um, and I, I, I really do think sort of the modern world of traveling and people traveling around has sort of evened things out a mm -hmm. lot more than people think. Yeah. So I want to come back to a, something you said in your first answer when you were talking about the travels you made. You mentioned Tasmania as kind of the, the place. So what was it about Tasmania that versus all these other wine regions, these mm -hmm. more established and more kind of you know dignified perhaps wine regions? What was it about Tasmania that, that stood out to you and as you were as you were traveling mm -hmm. through? There, there was a sense. There's definitely a sense of um, still being frontier, mm -hmm. right? Um, I mean, even southern Australia is very established. I mean, they have you know hundred-year-old vines and um, you know their families second, third generation families now, you know, doing it. And you go to Tasmania, it helps that it is a stunningly beautiful place. It helps that, you know, the coastline is spectacular. In a way, the Oregon coastline is a big part of why I'm here. Um, and, uh, but the, the, there's the frontier spirit, but there's also a, a, a singular focus on making good wine, mm. right? That. Because because you're sort of out there, there isn't the the, the obvious answer of let's do this because well, this is not I'm threading very dangerous ground when I'm in Oregon. Let's not do it because of wine tourism, right? 
let's do it because um, we want to make like really nice, really good wine. So as a community, they had no choice. Not a lot of people fly to Tasmania for wine tourism. So you're, if you're doing it, you're doing it because you want to make good wine. There is your, it's your, it's the only way you're going to make this work. Mm -hmm. That you have nothing else to offer, mm -hmm. right? Not because the scenery isn't amazing, just that you are very, very far away. Um, and that is uh, the, the 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 focus of that was you know was really refreshing. Mm -hmm. um, and all the other major wine regions have uh, obviously have this sort of history of making amazing wine, but there's a lot of other layers, uh, social layers around it. Right? Whereas in Tasmania, there just isn't. It's just like we're in the middle of nowhere and we're going to make some great wine, right? <laughs> and that was, the simplicity and focus of that was very attractive. Yeah. Definitely does sound a little familiar. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned your, your trip to the United States and, and visiting a lot of wine regions, but, but not Oregon. So, so tell me at what point you became aware of, of Oregon as a, as a wine region and, and of the wines here. And this is, this is um, so I, uh, I was living in Washington DC at the time and I went to a restaurant and on the list was a bottle of EIEIO Pinot Noir, Jamie McDonald, right? I've never tasted Oregon wine before um, and that was the very first time and I tasted it and I went, oh my goodness, this is amazing, right? And that was it, I kid you not, that, that is the moment. I mean, I knew of my studies, I read about Oregon, but you know, Oregon is one of many, many places in the world. There's no obvious link to it. I know about Pinot Noir, etc. But again, but it was tasting that wine and, and, and how amazing that was that made me went like, hang on, I need to know more about this place, right? And then I started reading more about it and I got on a plane and then I flew here. Um, I, still, I still remember the very first time I was here with my wife. Um, we you know, never been here. And the only thing we heard of was Dundee Hills, <laughs> right? And so where should we stay? I went, Dundee, okay. I still remember sort of renting the car, drove here, and we went, I'm sorry, is, is this it? This is <laughs> <laughs> basically Red Hills Market. That's it. That is Dundee. I was like, okay, this is not what I, you know, this is coming from California, coming from Bordeaux, coming from Burgundy, and this is like the hub, the center of the Oregon wine industry, right? And we turned on Red Hills Markings and looked around and went, you know, okay, this is it. This is, this is the Oregon wine industry, right? So that's how little I knew about it. And then obviously I stayed here and started traveling and, and tried to learn more. But if you think about it, well, I, that was probably in 2011, 2012. I mean, if you think about how much the place has grown since 2012, mm -hmm. right, in the last 10 years. I mean, even then it was, it was small and intimate, mm -hmm. right? I'm sure, you know, people like Jason Lai would say, no, it's already a monster by that stage, but it, compared to today, yeah, it's, uh, it's still quite small and intimate, yeah. So you, that's a pretty wonderful first impression of, of Oregon wine. I'm, I'm curious, as you started to travel here, what, what were your impressions of, of the wines here, of the, of the place and of the people as you, as you started to kind of make, your, make an acquaintance with Oregon? Um, Well, I'm, I, well, first of all, I'm, as you will find out later on, I'm not a naturally sort of sociable person. But the, the um, strangely enough, the first person I tried to get in touch with was Jay McDonald, right? Because that was the very first Oregon wine. Uh, and then 
that as a sort of starting point, there's sort of like a social circle around that that I began to sort of slowly spend time with and and meet. Mm -hmm. um, and there was definitely a sense of a, a very small and close-knit community, um, which is still true today, I think. But then it's sort of a natural function of if I don't stray away from that, it feels like that is the world, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure it's not. I mean, there must be hundreds and thousands of people involved now. But, um, but and, and th th there is that sort of frontier spirit, exactly what I'm talking about in, in Tasmania, right? Mm -hmm. It's like there's a group of people sort of like, you know, in the middle of nowhere kind of thing, right? And you have the only option you have is to make good wine because there was nothing else that you were trying to do, mm -hmm. right? And, and I definitely felt that. I, I felt that. Uh, that was a very strong sense of that's what this place is about because, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the only thing that's going on. Um, it's changed a lot since then. <laughs> but back then, definitely, that's what it felt like, yeah. So you mentioned that it was it was Jay's wine, E-I-E-I-O, that got yeah. you started. Um, as, you, as you tasted Oregon wines, did you find that his wine was representative of what you were tasting or, or, or was it was it an outlier was it, or, or oh no it wasn't an outlier it wasn't an outlier I mean I mean it's not as if it, it's not that um, uh, it's not an outlier in the sense that I I'm not even sure there is I'm not even sure if there is a, a obvious um, if there's an obvious thing called Oregon wine anymore right I think Oregon now produces a broad range of styles. Um, so he, he, his is one style in the spectrum, and there are others who are the same part of the spectrum. But I'm absolutely certain that there's now, you know, um, I'm, I'm, you know, the same thing as, as Chardonnay. Right? If you want to, um, is there such a thing as Oregon Chardonnay? Absolutely not. I mean, if I, we, I, I literally, I did this with Jancis. We did a, um, a horizontal tasting of 2014s. Um, and the message coming out of that was like, there is no one thing here, right? There's the, the range of, of styles is so big that you can't actually say, you know, that's Oregon. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, I, I, I think Jay's is, you know, on that part of a spectrum and there are others similar to him, but then there are others sort of on either side of him. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how does this project become something you want to do. You, you, you've come to Oregon, you've met some people, you've had some wines, you've seen Dundee. Tell me about what, how this becomes the next step and, and, and why this, this spot in particular. Um, you're, you're looking at the reason why. <laughs> <laughs> looking at the reason why this spot. Um, uh, what, it's accident, really. It's not as if you know, I had a lot of choices. Um, I spent, I don't know, a year maybe looking around. I'm just sort of traveling around and driving around. Um, I don't know what it is today, but back then it wasn't as if you know there were hundreds of property for sale. I mean, you really have to just do the legwork and travel, and and it was just true sheer luck that this came along. I, I, I already have. I already narrowed it down to a couple of variables. First of all, I was looking for altitude, so I wanted something higher, um, and. Uh, and, and, and one of the talks with one of the winemakers, the idea of an east-facing slope um, resonated with me because it catches the morning sun and it reduces disease pressure and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So the slope behind us, the east-facing slope, 
the altitude. So if you take that two variables, suddenly you're not down to many properties that you can look for. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just true. Uh, the soil type was a factor, but not as big of a factor. Um, I think it's debatable if you can say if there is the right soil type. Clearly, the fact that it's loam, it's jewelry, uh, is a very good thing. I like the idea of that. Um, and so, uh, jewelry soil, uh, altitude, east-facing slope, what's available, right? And this property popped out, mm -hmm. uh, and, and there was an opportunity to buy it, and so I did. Probably a lot bigger than the original one. <laughs> was thinking of getting but um, yeah so that's how I ended up here so describe the property for me as you as you first see it before you've done anything to it what what was here before and and, and how big was it and what was your sort of vision for it what it could become so we're sitting uh, uh, so the property the whole property is 80 acres and we're sitting in the top 40 so it's divided into two, two bits um, just around the corner there there's a fence line and below that, so where all the white oaks are, mm -hmm. that's uh, the bottom 40 acres. We're in the sort of top 40 acres. And when I got here, all the walnut trees are here. Um, and then everything else was blackberries. Like literally, apart from this sort of dirt road that we sort of walked down. If you look left and right, all you saw was like 10 foot high blackberry bushes. Right, The whole place was covered. Um, and so the very first thing, apart from fencing, uh, that I did was basically just trying to carve out areas of land, um, which is, you know, to remove the blackberries. But it was all done mechanically. So from the, from the very first day, I was very determined to not use any chemicals at all, which some would say in, was insanity. But but you know, but I've managed to carve out you know areas of land, but it needs work to make it continue to look like this. Um, uncapped as it is, it's, it's an insane amount of work to fight back the blackberries. Um, and I actually quite grew quite fond of them, which is why I actually keep them, actually. Um, and, you know, we pick them and they're just the most amazing fruit. Um, and into, so I, I was very focused on the, on the east-facing slope for the vines. I had no plans for the rest of the property at all. Um, I just sort of thought, just let it be. Right, and as part of the sort of the ecosystem here, um, it gave me scope to sort of just um, create a, 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 a vineyard that's sort of just sort of lost in the wild, as it were. You mm -hmm. know, and to be able to surround it with an ecosystem was was nice. It wasn't the plan. It was just so because I had this property and I was focused on the east-facing slope and the rest of it. I just sort of let it be. Mm -hmm. I couldn't let it be completely wild, otherwise everything would be blackberries. Which is why I then had sort of goats and llama and sort of carved out areas where they roam. So the bit behind us used to be, all of it was like that, like the, those blackberries over there, like literally every single inch of this was. And the only reason why it looks like this now is the goats. So over the years, they're there for about nine months of the year. I've moved them now. They're in another part of the land for the summer, but during the, uh, the winter, spring, and parts of the autumn, they're here. And they've actually been responsible for, you know, fighting back the blackberries. So I've done, like, for that part of the land and that part of the land, I haven't touched it with any equipment. Right? It was just all uh, goats and llama. Here, yes, I actually have a mower to sort of go around <laughs> um, to, to push back the blackberries. Um, 
In terms of the future, I'm just very focused on what I have now. I think it would take m literally my lifetime to just focus on that. Um, and if the next generation feels like doing other things, they'll probably be more than welcome to. But I have no plans. Yeah. So tell me about <coughs> installing the vineyard. Then uh, you you mentioned uh, kind of in the wild, vineyard in the wild. Tell me about what's the what's the philosophy behind the the way you did the vineyard, and, and what did you plant, and how did you choose what to plant? Um. I think as I, as I was, um, uh, I mean, wh one of the reasons I actually ended up doing this is, is I was mentioned earlier on, was sort of a communing with nature thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was, as I was doing research on um, sort of organics and biodynamics, uh, my wife bought me a copy of Fukuoka's book, One Straw Revolution. Um, and, and, and if there was an epiphany moment in this whole process, that was it. Right? That, that was the one where I went, I, oh yeah, so this, there's a different way of thinking about this. And I didn't, I didn't realize people were thinking like that, the way that he was thinking. Um, and from that point onwards, sort of all the decisions became centered on um, exploring how that could work. Um, and so, yeah, so everything that you sort of see around here comes from the idea of seeing whether that could work or not. So for those not familiar, take me through a little bit of, of sure. what's what, what, <coughs> what, what is what is different about that. I think the um, the. Uh, the biggest. The biggest, the biggest difference is that you have to re, you, you have to rethink um, you have to rethink what viticulture is. Okay, it is not the way the way I the way I understand it and the way I read it is. If you think about conventional viticulture, if you think about organic, if you think about biodynamics, they are actually all the same. What's different is that you're spraying different things. Right, the fundamental philosophy is I have a plot of land and I'm going to cultivate it. And what do I cultivate it with? Right? And, and what are the tools that I can use to cultivate it? Right? The, the, the Fukuoka philosophy turns it on its head slightly by saying, what if you do nothing? What would happen? Right? And that, if, you, if you have that starting point, it changes everything. Because it's not, so a lot of people come to me and say, instead of spraying this, what will Fukuoka spray? Well, well, no, that's not the point. You always have to go back to the starting question, which is, what if it did nothing? Right? What will happen? Mm -hmm. right? and, then you get a, and then you start to feel, and through observation, you start to get an understanding of what would naturally occur. And then from that, you start to devise a way of living with the land that maximizes what would occur naturally, right? Therefore, minimizes what you have to do, and you end up with something that is more in line of what nature would want to give you. And not that that inevitably will lead to um, uh, a better wine. That's not the point, right? Neither is that that will lead to higher yield, which it may do, but that's again not the point, right? The point is, if you focus on what would naturally happen, you get a you get a product which is, again, that's still not the point. Not that you get a product more natural, but it's a, it's a way of life, mm -hmm. right? That you are more in tune with nature. And I think that's sort of the underlying philosophy 
of it. And the, the, um, the critics of that would say, well, that's hardly useful, is it? Right? You know, I have debt, you know, I have land, I have a yield number that I have to hit, right? The, the counter to that would be, um, first of all, I, I am not a proponent of it. I, I, I'm, I'm not on the crusade to think that everybody should do it. I, I, I do it because I like it. Right, and I'm under no illusion. This could be insanity. I'm under no illusion that the numbers will never work out. Right, um, but it might. Right, but that, again, that's not the point. The point is, if if it does, it's amazing. Like I have vines. Um, actually, the vines that you just saw have had no spray this year. None, zero. Right, my land is not tilled. Right, no tilling, no spraying. All they had was sun and water, and I have grapes. Right? Again, the critics will say, well, what is your yield? Yes, it's shockingly low. <laughs> I understand that, right? But think about it. I did nothing to get shockingly low yield. My, my yield return on effort put in is insanely high, right? So there, there, are, there are lots of, you know, and, and there's another, there's, you know, literally, more, like there are vines, the vines over there had uh, some wheat whacking done. Right, that's all I did. The vines over here have had nothing done at all, not even wheat whacking. Right, this section here, since the beginning of the year, the only thing I did was prune. So after March pruning, I have not been back in that part of the vineyard. Right, I'm just going to let it just do its own thing. And if you go in there now, you see vines, green leaves, fruit, right? And I've done nothing to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that process of... And, you, you have to rethink the whole thing of saying, like, if you have a yield number you're trying to hit, never do this. Or do it in the 20th year when you begin to understand what this land will give you, then I will be able to predict yield. In fact, I can tell you what the yield is year by year while I, you know, don't do anything to the land, right? But it will take that kind of time, mm -hmm. right? And, and it will take sort of, I don't know, 10, 20 years or something before this thing settles into its own kind of rhythm. Um, and it may be the yield is so shockingly low that it doesn't make any sense. Or maybe not, right? What is the right, if, if, if you don't have to till or spray, what is the right yield number, right? That is a question that nobody ever asks because that's insanity. Right? For the, because I, you have a business plan, I need this amount of grapes right, so that I can make this amount of wine so that I can, you know. So if you tell me that you can't even answer the first question, how much grapes you're going to, then this method is completely meaningless, right? But that's also because nobody does it. If there was a history of, you know, lots of people doing it, people will be able to tell you what the yield is. Because as a region, Oregon, we all do this. And in a hundred years, you know, we will be able to tell for this plot of land, right, if you, you still have to clear the blackberries, that's the one part Fukuoka hasn't taken, can't do it, deal with. Uh, or maybe you can, I don't know, I haven't found the answer yet. <laughs> and, um, you know, you'll be able to sort of predict it, right? But if nobody does it, then of course nobody knows the answer, right? Again, I'm not ev an advocate at all, because I completely understand the need for people to make a living, right? Uh, you can't tell the Oregon wine industry to just put everything on hold for 100 years, right? Um, but if more and more people try it and do it, and we start accumulating knowledge about this, maybe, maybe. Mm -hmm. And if nobody wants to do it, that's perfectly fine with me, right? Because I, I, I really, the, the sense of, um, and it's, it, it's incredibly personal, but the sense of achievement of um, seeing a vine, you know, that you planted grow up 
and survive through all the sort of weather changes that we've seen to be healthy green leaves producing fruit where I have literally not touched it at all. That sense of that vine being so in tune with nature, it's amazing. It really is. It means, it, 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 so now when I go to a vineyard, when I see it, it's like, you know, acres and acres of this perfectly sort of manicured vineyard, which I completely understand why it's necessary, doesn't really leave me with much. I don't feel that, wow, that's amazing. It's striking. The first image is striking, but then afterwards I sort of go, I can, all I can see is the tractors, right? All I can see is the work that's been done to it. Whereas, you know, if you, if, if you take me, there's, um, um, there's a guy on social media, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an English winemaker who travels around and he's doing this project in Bolivia. And they have these sort of 200 year old vines that are literally climbing up trees. And that's how they make wine. They literally climb up the tree to harvest from vines. That, that strike, that to me, that was like, oh my God, that is the most amazing vineyard I have ever seen, right? So it's not, you know, Montrachet or DRC, it's, that is it. For me, that is the, sort of the essence of what's possible. Um, and so my, that very much drives uh, what, what I'm trying sort of to do here. So just let things develop as much as possible naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to react to things. I mean, I mean, you know, last year, powdery mildew was crazy. This year's not. Um, last year was absolutely crazy. And if I really did do nothing, everything would be covered in powdery mildew. Right? Again, not sure what Fukuoka answered answer the powdery mildew is. <laughs> but um, but he, his counter argument was that if that happens every year, then you should be planting grapes anyway. And then also, in what if it doesn't happen every year? There are years where you will lose everything. You lose everything, right? You have to sort of ride through that, right? Um, but you know, it's nature. People who did everything last year still lost everything too, right? Um, and it may be, uh, maybe if you don't do anything and lose everything, it's better than doing everything and lose everything. So it's a real kind of a, it, it's a philosophical thing rather than, you know, this is, you know, you should teach it at college because this is the best thing to make wine and have a wine industry. It could be, it could be, but nobody's, you know, mm -hmm. there, there isn't enough. It just takes too long, I think. But there are also elements of it that you can adopt, right, as a philosophy. You can push it as far as you want to in terms of doing nothing, or you can always just take a step back and just relax a bit and just let things develop a little bit, right? Clearly, debt does not help. Clearly, if you have interest payment, it does not help. But if you have the luxury of no debt, right, and you have some sort of wiggle room on the, and I, I, I'm not even sure financially. I would argue that it's, I think you, you have no control over revenue, but you have a lot less cost, mm -hmm. right? So in terms of strictly on return, you know, if you have no debt, if you have no interest payments, strictly on return, on, a, on, on, on thinking about return, it may actually be better. Um, I don't know, right? Um, and, and I think that's, that's something that's worth exploring if people feel like it or not, as the case may <laughs> <laughs> No, I had, a, I had an interview with someone uh, literally on this topic. The whole interview was just about Fukuoka. And, and, and he came out and said, well, you're not really going to be an advocate. But I was no, absolutely not. I have no intention to be an advocate, right? Because I completely understand the need for people to make a living. And this is not the way to do it right now without accumulated experience, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So tell me about 
obviously the, the, the from a philosophical perspective you can see the benefits of this you can see like you mentioned the kind of in, in tune with nature and, and watching things happen yeah what are the biggest challenges for you uh, how how do you decide when when and how much to intervene and, and and what are the challenges for you as you go through a growing season um i haven't had many growing seasons <clears throat> so i think that's the first thing um ultimately it boils down to does it matter does yield matter Okay, if yield matters, then this is this is it's, this literally is insanity. But if yield doesn't matter, then actually there are no challenges. So that's the sort of the philosophical thing, right? If if it is okay to lose the whole crop, then what challenges can there be? Right? You just let this thing do its thing, and you experiment with. Okay, if I if I weed whack away the blue, the blackberries, what happens? If I don't weed whack the, the blackberry, what happens? And the answer is that in both cases you have grapes. Okay. But how, again, yield, right? That's the, that's, that's, that's the variable that you are trying, um, that you're grappling with. But if, if you take that off the table, then there are literally no challenges. Because I, what are you trying to solve for? If you say, um, I'm trying to solve for the vines being alive, they're alive, right? Then what else are you trying to solve for? So I think. Once you say, okay, yield matters, then what are, what are the boundaries, right? How, how high and how low can they be before it's an issue? And then within that, you kind of think about what are the challenges. I think I, I, it is one of the things I found out is it's clearly it's highly, highly sensitive, right? In the sense that if you don't do anything at all, you know, if you go walk through that vineyard, there are literally certain rows that do much better than others. Mm-hmm. Now it could be the plant material, or it could literally be just this thing is so sensitive that that particular spot in terms of water, airflow, everything is just right. And then two rows away from it, it's not, right? Or it's the plant material. That that set of plant material is more in tune to this land, and that isn't. I don't know the answer to that. So I, one or the other. So I think the real challenge is, is just time. If I can accelerate this process so that we have a season every week, Right, rather than every 52 weeks, then I'll have a chance to observe this and gather enough sort of experience to be better at thinking through all the issues. But I don't. So we just have to wait a year, right? And then you sort of accumulate some knowledge. And then, and each year, as each year go by, I, I change slightly what I do and the sequence of it with, with, with what I do by referencing what happened the year before. But it's just going to take time. I think time, the biggest challenge by a mile is, is time, is, is that it takes a long time to accumulate um, uh, experience. There hasn't been any diseases, apart from powdery mildew last year, or pests, that in itself killed every vine, right? Again, I'm sure you can get a long list of consultants to come here and look, and this is the most horrendous vineyard I've ever seen, right? It's like, why are you doing this? Why, why is that, are they, you know, fine, right? The vines are alive, they produce grapes, right? But they want more than that. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and so I cannot offer them more. So if you say, "What is the biggest challenge?" is I cannot offer more than that, right? Um, or maybe I can, but I don't haven't figured out. You know what? Uh, there is literally one row of vine further further down the slope, which is much more vigorous than all the others. Which the green is right now. If you go down now, I have not watered. It is almost surrounded by blackberries now, um, and it's super lush no powdery mildew, just completely naturally on its own. And I have no idea why. 
<laughs> literally, I wish, I wish my whole vineyard is like that, but it isn't, right? And and, and that fascinates. Mm -hmm. So I, so if I if I look at that vine and I say, there literally there are no problems at all, right? The problem is I only have that row, right? If you say, can you repeat that, you know, eight thousand times uh, currently? No, because I don't even know why that happened, right? But if I did, then I can repeat. Then we have no problems anymore, okay? Um, so I think the biggest challenge is time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that this is going to take forever. It's a generational thing, which has always been. I mean, the monks took a long time to figure out. Yeah, Burgundy. So it will be. It will, it will take time. So with that said, as as you're observing year to year, what what are you looking for? What what are the observations you're trying to make, and 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 what are the adjustments you make based on that? Um, having taken yield off the table, bringing it back on again, mm -hmm. right, and just seeing, um, and again, I, this is so difficult. I mean, there are so many variables involved. You can never isolate it. You know. This is, the, this is the worst scientific experiment you can do. There's just, it's just so uncontrolled. There are so many variables. You know, I have no idea what caused what. Um, I think for, for me, it's still the, the uh, probably water and competition, right? Because I don't till. Okay, so the impact of not tilling, the impact of. Um, uh, how that affects, you know, vigor and, and growth through the season. Uh, and I experiment with that. I, if there's one unnatural thing I do, I water. That's, that's why you see hose pipes around here. I have no irrigation system though. But I, I just literally hand water um, the vines. And I don't do it across the whole thing. So I, because I, I only do it for sections of it, I can see the difference between doing it and not doing it. Um, and again, if you take gill off the table, doesn't matter as long as at the end of the day you get the fruit. You get, but it may matter if you if you go down to zero. That's not exactly great, right? It has to be something. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's experimenting with that. That is practically the only thing I experiment with is water, and understanding that. But that changes as the root gets deeper anyway, mm -hmm. right? So to your point about challenges, if I had a 30-year-old vineyard here, which has been dry farm. Oh my God, this would be so easy. This would be like, this would be like literally the easiest thing in the world because you just basically take water off the table, right? So, so now what else do I have to worry about? I've already solved the water problem because the root system is deep, right? Um, and then in terms of diseases and pests, I am not aware of any pests that has affected things in any significant way at all. Are my leaves like you know, can you take pictures and put it in a magazine, all of them? No. Some of them have little holes in them and so on. But, but broadly speaking, they're mm -hmm. fine, right? Um, and um, yes, there are molehills everywhere. Um, I don't mind, right? They help churn and they help sort of aerate the soil. And as long as it's on, I'm not aware of losing any vines because of them, mm. right? Literally, the, yes, the ground looks uneven. Right, but the um, but in terms of the impact on uh, the vines, I haven't s seen anything. Uh, powdery mildew, that's it. It all boils down to that one thing. Uh, that's the only thing that. Uh, and I have experimented with spraying milk, which is why you see that tank over there. Um, and that's the only thing I have sprayed today. And I didn't even do that for all of the vineyard. I did it for sections of it. Um, so I spray diluted milk, but I don't know whether. It, 
this here seems, oh my goodness, it's a wood to touch. This here seems fine, but I don't know if it's because I sprayed milk or this year was fine anyway because mm -hmm. of the heat earlier in the season. There were, some people were saying that the crazy heat we have for five days actually dramatically reduced powdery mildew pressure, right? Um, and so, and then we're done. We have no, I literally, I have no other problems. I mean, it's just stopping the blackberries from taking <laughs> over the whole property. But that's basically it. Uh, literally, I'm down to that one problem of stopping blackberries from taking out, you know, everything else. And then sort of, you know, you have to prune. That's unfortunately, I think there are people in Australia who would even stop doing that. Right? What happens if you don't even prune it? Right? The Bolivian 200-year-old vines climbing out of the tree thing, right? Um, but so you, you, you suddenly reduce it down to very, very little things that mm -hmm. you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, grasses grow here. And if you don't mow them, you know, they will reach a point you can't even get into the vineyard, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there's, the, there's, there's, you have to do some element of mowing to, for excess. Um, nothing else, mm -hmm. really. Uh, but um, I have very young vines, and again, you know, if, if, if you're thinking of pruning and creating sort of structures, and what are the other problems that come with higher leaf density? And, but that's again a question of yield. Right, what if I don't prune for yield? I prune for reducing the sort of powdery mildew, mm -hmm. right? And they'll say, well, then you can only get a bunch of grape vine, I'll get a bunch of grape vine, right? So all of these kind of equations, I mean, the, the equations change if you, if you start fixing different variables, mm -hmm. right? And conventional viticulture is so set in its way in terms of, you know, what are, what are the things that you fix? that everything else has to follow to make that work, right? Whereas you take that off the table, then suddenly you have room to maneuver, right? So when it came time to plant, tell me what you decided to plant and, and, and how, and how, and, and um, if you have future plans to plant something different. I don't have future plans to plant anything different. Okay. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, I decided on Chardonnay, um, uh, one, because I like it, uh, and two, uh, I went to, um, <clears throat> so when I started this, when I started thinking about Oregon, it was all Pinot Noir, right? It probably still is, or, um, predominantly Pinot Noir. And uh, so my original thoughts were Pinot Noir because of that, because I knew very little, as we've established, I knew very little about Oregon. When I, when I got here. And then it was, again, through sheer luck, um, it was the 2012 Chardonnay Symposium, I think. It was, I think it must be 2012, 2013, it must be 2012. has to be 2012. The vintage they were pouring was the 2011. Um, and there was six people pouring. Um, the room had maybe 40 people in it if that, it was tiny, tiny thing, right? This is not IPNC. Um, and I tasted the wine and it was just a revelation. It was just like, wow, I didn't, it just never occurred to me to even think about it, right? Um, and it was at that point when I went like, oh no, 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 this is, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not gonna do the Pinot Noir thing because it is, it's special. And, I, and my, my uh, you know, white burgundy and, and, and Chablis, and it's, it's, it's a big part of what I used to drink. Um, 
and um, and so suddenly having something it would never be the same but having something that is uh, in that kind of zone because of the climate here right suddenly was very uh, it's just like yeah that's that's what I'm going to do so basically um, it's all Chardonnay and I have sort of 12 clones and field selections in there yeah So you have your, you're drinking from your, your first mm -hmm. vintage here, 2019. Tell me about that process of finally having enough grapes to make wine from, ah. and, and what happened then? The grapes are not from the vineyard. <laughs> okay. So a tiny amount of the grapes, and I mean tiny amount of grapes are from this vineyard, but most of it is from Lingua Franca. So um, I've I, I decided that instead of waiting for you know, another 20 years to make my first vintage, <laughs> I might, I should probably should think about that too. Um, and it was very fortunate to, I can't even remember how we met or how the conversation started, but uh, Thomas mm -hmm. at, um, at Lingua Franca and just talked to him about the possibility of, of making wine there and, and indeed buying grapes there, right? Because I don't have enough here um, to do it at scale. I think this year I'll have enough to, if I, you know, to just, I'm not even sure if I have enough to make a barrel, but definitely I have enough to make wine. Mm -hmm. But in terms of making, you know, a hundred cases of wine, no, I don't, right? Um, but I wanted to kickstart that process because that, again, it's, you get to do it once a year, right? So I, if I, it would, it would take me years to even, again, for this part of the process to accumulate knowledge mm -hmm. and experience and think about what are the variables that you want to tweak. And. Um, that's uh, and so yeah so that's I approached him and we he said sure uh, and again you know Pinot Noir is such a big thing here Chardonnay even then a few years ago is still a relatively small thing he said if I wanted to Pinot Noir there's no way that place is packed with Pinot Noir they can't do more but if it's but if it's but if it's Chardonnay yeah because they split the winery into a red a red part of the winery and a white part of the winery and the white part of the winery there is still space because you know everybody wants to do Pinot Noir um, and uh, yeah, and so that's how, how it started. And I started that process of you know learning about you know what barrels to buy and stuff like that. And, 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 and a lot of that also came from my travels, so my choice of barrels and, and how much to use. And part of it's me thinking through things that I've heard. Part of it's just literally going to Burgundy and just literally asking people, what barrel did you use? Which forest did they come from? You know. Why 350 liters and like that stuff? So with the with that part of the process now, you you're the winemaking part of the process kind of being the, the last thing. Um, how involved did you want to be? Did you want to be the one doing all of the winemaking? Did you want to? I mean, how involved did you want to be in the process of right. actually making the wine? Um, not cleaning everything, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, uh, it, it, um, from the beginning, the idea was that um, I have to own this, right? So um, the team at Lingua Franca won't make key decisions for me. All right? I, I have to make it. Uh, I have to own it, right? which is great, which is exactly what, what I want. Clearly, all of the manual work. It's done by it's done by the the team at Lingua Franca, um, but you know from 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 the choice of barrels, uh, 
uh, to sort of pressing cycle, to use yeah. of sulfur, to batonage, to racking, to time spent in barrel versus time spent in steel. All of those points um, uh, was my decision. Mm -hmm. and, and, and needs to be my decision because I have to own it, right? Um, and they will, I'm sure Thomas was steering me, right? But on, on the other hand, you know, he's, you, you decide. Um, and, and you know, critically, for example, harvest, mm -hmm. right? Your call. Do you want it now? Do you want it a week from now? Right? And and so I, I had to develop um, my own ideas of, of of what are the variables I look for to make the decision. And and every you know every single part of that process. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So what did you care about in terms of that process? Mm. What, were, what were the parts of the things that you were very much like? This is something I, I care deeply about in the winemaking process. Uh, in terms of in, uh, in terms of the style of wine, um, uh, well, we're drinking it. I think there's there's a, there's, an, there's an element there, there there are a couple of elements of of, of Chardonnay that matters to me. Um, the first one is um, uh, salinity, okay, and and I I like the tension of having. Uh, um, Chardonnay, which is sort of slightly sort of saline. Um, I like the um, interplay of salinity and sort of creaminess. So the malolactic fermentation matters, but you have to balance it with enough acid and kind of, you know, the, the sort of saline nature of it. So that tension matters, which, um, which all points to, I think, and I'm sure more experienced winemaker may correct me, which points to getting the pH right. Mm -hmm. right? Um, it's remarkable how much of winemaking centers on pH, actually. Uh, and therefore, harvesting to pH rather than harvesting to bricks matters a lot to me. And that's kind of like, that's a cornerstone of everything that's, that I, I'm doing now and will do when these guys grow up. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the second part of it is oak. Uh, I, I think oak matters. I think oak matters in Chardonnay. I, 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 not convinced why there's an obsession with oak chardonnay. Um, I can understand why you shouldn't use too much oak, but I don't understand why you have to be zero oak. Okay. Um, so that's another part of it which I have to sort of think through mm -hmm. and make decisions on on uh, what are, what's the right answer in terms of managing a barrel regime. Mm -hmm. That's kind of it, really. Um, everything else is just letting it happen. Um, it's all, you know, wild east. Um, and that's, and that's it. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of tiny details, right? Like, you know, when you're racking, you know, how careful you are racking it. And, you know, obviously everything has to be very clean. And they are, and, and sulfur. So, um, minimal use of sulfur, but but it's an important part of it. It has to be monitored. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's not a dogmatic thing of, of like I shouldn't. I I will refuse to use sulfur, or I have to just blast it until everything is dead. So it's a. But there is a. There's a pragmatic kind of, uh, and this is the thing that the lingua franca team does so well. It's the precision in which they monitor what's going on, right? And how carefully they keep monitoring what's going on. Um, and you know, people talk about minimal intervention sort of winemaking you can do it blindly or if you don't want to do it blindly the amount of effort required to make sure things don't go wrong is huge 
right? Whereas if you just blast it with sulfur, you can leave it for a year and then everything is fine. But if you don't do that, then you have to sort of stay, mm -hmm. stay on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the sulfur thing, and I literally, I sort of, I, I, I had no benchmark of what is high and what is low, but when we bottled it and I, I wrote my tech sheet and, and sort of circulated the tech sheet for this wine and I got a response back and I said, oh my God, didn't you, you didn't use any sulfur at all. And I was like, oh my God, did I do something wrong. Right. <laughs> so I, why should I, should I use more? Um, so that's another part of it, I think, that sort of uh, actively sort of managed. Um, I can't really think of anything else, really. So it, you know, it, you harvest it, you put it into a tank, settles overnight, rack into barrels, it turns into wine, stays in barrel for a year, goes back into the tank for another six months, and then it goes into a bottle. That's it. Just that easy. Well, no, this enormous <laughs> amount of work. But but, the, but if you write down the recipe, right? Yeah, that is the recipe. I like that you mentioned people responding that way to your tech sheet because it kind of reminds me of like parenting, where like everything you're doing, everybody else is like, I, I can't believe you're doing that. How did you? How did you do that? And you're like, right. Am I doing it wrong? Am I, exactly. I'm <laughs> like, oh, sorry. Should I use more? <laughs> because like, I have no idea. I have no benchmark, right? It's like, oh, sorry. What? Should I use more? So now that you you had you have wine, tell me about the next part of the process of of coming up with a label and a name and and of actually mm -hmm. selling the wine. Um. The label uh, is not very imaginative at all. I mean, it's that's my family name. Um, so this, this new new is my family name. Uh, obviously, the Chinese character is Rao. Uh, this is the, the calligraphy is my father, so he wrote this. That's awesome. Um, and so this is it. So he wrote this. Literally translates to some new vineyard. So this is the, the the new family, you know, estate garden basically. So this is a new vineyard. That's it. Um, so. And and there's two seals here. This is the Chinese. One is one is um, the family name, and then the other one is the character for quiet uh, Jing, uh, which the simplest translation is quiet, but it, it has uh, ideas of meditation and 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 introspection and you know the whole sort of Buddhist thing. Um, Associated with that, and that—that that is very much part of. Um, it, it, it's a family ethos things, but it's also part of this, the whole thing that I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. So that's the two uh, seal, mm -hmm. and that's the label. And what about selling it? Um, I made about a uh, hundred cases, roughly, more uh, slightly more than that. So I went, oh, actually, it's one thousand three hundred and twenty-two bottles, and. So it's not a big volume to deal with. Uh, in the US, um, there are a group of people that have followed me um, through this process, and they just basically bought it from me directly. Um, it's available at ENR. Mm -hmm. That's the only shop that has it. Um, and they sell it. And then a decent chunk of it's gone to Singapore, mm -hmm. um, which is where my father lives, mm -hmm. and where, you know, obviously I know people that. Uh, uh, a, uh, a chunk of it is on its way to Japan, um, and apart from that, um, and that's it. That's the whole lot. So I've sold that, right? Um, so the, 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 the Japan bit is still uh, on a container ship, but the Singapore bit sold out. The U.S. bit is sold out. Um, I have not. I don't have. It's it's true word of mouth, mm -hmm. um, and 
you know, the team at ENR got in touch with me, probably because of the Fukuoka thing. And they came and they did this, they tasted it and, and um, decided to take it. And then literally almost everyone else had just been following me on social media who all know me personally. Um, I've not, no, I literally have no marketing plan. <laughs> like literally, it's just sort of a, uh, which I think is perfectly fine if you like the sort of mod, the, the volumes that I'm producing, right? So the friends and family wine club. The, the friends. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm curious about uh, the first of all, kind of your feelings about, about putting a wine out there with your name on the label, mm -hmm. and, and about the reactions you've gotten to the wine so far. Um, Nerve-wracking, as I said. I mean, it truly is one of the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done. Um, I have never been, uh, I have not done anything like this before in terms of uh, putting putting myself and the name and the label out there for essentially for people to judge right? and, 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 and to get feedback. Um, so it's definitely nerve-wracking. And but now that it's you know the first step has happened. And I, I remember telling my wife that you know, it's crucially important that we we have to remember for every you know negative comment, hopefully there's two positive one, right? So don't 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 focus on the negative. Don't like don't like you know, throw in the towel because we had one negative comment. Um, so far, um, I have only heard of the positive comments. So clear, and I'm a hundred percent certain there are lots of negative ones, but they have not told me. So I'm surrounded by just, you know, waves of positive comment, which is great. But unconsciously, I know that doesn't account for everything. Right? So, so it's good that people have kept criticism to themselves, um, but, uh, but just have responded very positively to it. So which is nice. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think it's a, like, um, it's a, Actually, I don't know why. I actually don't know why. It, the, why it's. I, I don't know why people. I mean, I, I like that people like it. I like it, right? And I like that people like it, but I can't really put my finger on why it's been so well received. You mentioned earlier, you kind of brought up 2020 uh, as you were talking about, like, you know, you can do everything right and still lose everything in, in a mm. year. So what's. Let's talk a little bit about 2020 mm -hmm. and, and about kind of the, 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 the twin impacts of 2020. First, let's talk about uh, COVID and, and last spring. So tell me about, <clears throat> on a kind of personal professional level, as, as COVID hits and the, and the shutdown begins last spring, what, what were the changes you had to make to your, to your work and to your life? And, and, and what did you kind of deal, do throughout the year to kind of deal with that? Right. Um, COVID has had very little impact on me. Um, primarily, as you can see, I work alone in the middle of nowhere. So, and and crucially, I think for people, I even for people who were working with crews, obviously there were issues of you know social distancing. But broadly speaking, if you're out on the winery, I mean, out in a in a vineyard, you, you have, you're working in outdoor and in space, right? So I think the impact is sort of slightly less um, in the winery. Definitely during harvest. Um, there were more kind of protocol issues and, and 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 stuff like that, but that was completely blown away by the smoke, right? Mm -hmm. So I think COVID, from a practical winemaking perspective, has had very relatively little, definitely no impact on me, but I suspect relatively little impact on the industry. The really big thing is the disappearance of the restaurant trade, mm -hmm. right? So if for people with who uh, you know who have um, 
decent chunk of the business going to those who I'm sure they really and that was bad um, but for people who didn't have that uh, I heard stories of how actually they did fine actually if not great because people were buying drinking at home right? um, so that the, the really big impact is not I, on a personal front obviously the, the, the impact COVID was huge in terms of kids not being able to go to school and, but not on the winemaking front um, uh, the really big impact was the smoke we were I think three or four days away from harvest right and then it happened and it's all gone right so to, to get that close right if it, if it was all gone halfway through the year or if it was all gone in the spring because of frost for the rest of the year you're not thinking about it anymore right but to get to the point of being four days away from harvest and then see I mean it, literally I was here and you could see the smoke coming from over, you could see it literally, it's like in the movies, just coming from over the, you know, from, from the range, slowly coming towards the end. The sky was orange. Um, it was astonishing. Uh, and yeah, that was, that was something else. And I think, uh, yeah, and then it was all gone. <laughs> and people, I, we were scrambling to save. I actually made one. So because, you know, we had a decision to make. So do I just, say it's all gone or do we still make it right and and see what we can do with it so i did so we did we did make it so i did do it i i i made a 2020 vintage but the 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 impact of the smoke is so obvious that i can't walk around so, even, even on chardonnay yeah even on chardonnay and i i i, I you cannot generalize across all the vineyards but definitely for the the, the grapes that i was using it was obvious enough that i can um, and I'm 100% sure there are others that are perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's on, on, a, on a vineyard by vineyard basis, you have to sort of figure it out. Yeah. So we talked earlier about your first impressions of Oregon's wine industry, uh, and uh, I'm curious, and you, are, and, you, and you kind of alluded to some changes you've seen. So tell yeah. me about the changes you've seen in the last decade. What's, what's different about Oregon wine? And, and as, we're, as we're starting to come out of the pandemic, what, what do you see happening in the next few years in the industry? Mm -hmm. Um, I may be one of the worst person to ask the question because I spend so little time in the industry. So I have, I've, uh, um, in, in what also happened in the last five years is I, I now have two, two sons, two kids. So one is one sort of two and a half. So I have disappeared from the industry. So yeah, I've, I've spent relatively little time. So for the last five years, I've spent relatively little time talking to people. Um, but I'm aware of what goes on through social media. I mean, I can see people's social media stream. Right? Um, I don't know what, it'll, and I have no numbers. I mean, you will be in a much better position than me with, 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 with numbers and being able to segment the, 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 the industry into sort of different segments and what, um, what is the relative scale of this. It, but it, 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 it seems to me that there's now uh, three, probably three different parts of the industry, right? There's, I think there now exists a volume part of the industry. Not exactly Gallo, but actually, are they here? They are there. No, no, they're not. Jackson, right? Yeah. Um, but definitely a, a volume part with everything uh, to do with that. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. I've worked in Australia. And for people who, who do that well and do that sincerely, it's a very difficult thing to do, right? And, and if you can do it well and do it sincerely, um, 
all good, right? But you need to do it sincerely, right? And um, so I think that's part of Oregon now that probably when I started really wasn't. I mean, it was King Estate was probably the biggest thing, but then there was very few other of that scale, but I think there's more of that now. And then there is another part of the industry which I think still exists, is sort of where I am, which is sort of like really small producer, not really knowing what to do with marketing, but just really focused on making wine kind of people, right? Um, and then there's another part which I think is much bigger now than it was when I started, which is um, much more focused on marketing, wine tourism, and, and, and pushing that part of the business forward. And I, I, that is much more prominent, bizarrely enough, on social media, because that's the whole point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's new. That's definitely new. The, 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 you know, um, I, and I don't mean it's in a bad way, but it's sort of a nappification of it. Right. And, 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 you know, and you hear stories coming out of California of how they have evolved, you know, in that process. And, you know, and Oregon is also evolving and, and thinking of new things to do. So I think that's, for me, that's the biggest part, the difference is, is that is now much more prominent um, than it used to be. Not least because every now and again, the helicopter will fly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I never used to have that. Yeah. So what about as you look ahead? What's, what's, what will that continue or, or, or what, what changes do you see or, or, or maybe are, are hoping for? Hmm. I, I, I don't think I can hope for anything. I, I think um, I, maybe that I will be more engaged in the industry. Maybe it's what I, I hope I'll be able to do when the kids grow up. But I, I, I think... I think I think it's nice to have all of these different segments now. The danger is if um, one segment becomes so dominant that the others don't exist anymore. Right. That's I think that's a worry rather than a hope of what will happen. So if there's hope, is that all of these different spectrum of activity continues, and that there's room for for everybody to do all of that. Um, so that would be it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's one, and and obviously of the three. Of the three segments that I talked about, the most vulnerable was the, was, was the third one of the people, you know, the small producer who, you know, uh, how, how are we going to, you know, sell wine when the consumer expect, you know, tasting events and I don't offer that, right? Um, so that's, that is the worry rather than, than, than anything else. But I, there's a part of me that's kind of think as long as the volumes are small enough, there will always be a market um, out there for a carefully produced bottle of wine. I hope. If not, then, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure what the next step is. But um, but as long as there is that, and I think there is. I think there is. Um, uh, and, and, and Oregon is the kind of place that there is still, there is still frontier element to it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Dundee is now not frontier anymore. It's like absolutely, uh, you know, establishment. And then, and then, uh, even, but then if you go down to sort of McMinnville, and then you start going to sort of Venduza Corridor, and, and they are still, it's, once you get out there, people that still, you have no option but to focus on make wine, because not many tourists go there anymore, right? Um, so I think there will always be people who are here, which is, which is who devote sort of 80% of their time to sort of thinking about that, and, and others with different teams focus on different you know 
um, different thing. And I think that's going to continue. I hope so, because I'm part of that, right? Um, I, I don't have any... I, I, one of the things that Oregon has always grappled with, and I'm not sure what the answer is yet, is this concept of brand Oregon, right? And this is a very young region, and um, in the next 50 years, as these sort of three parts of the industries continue to evolve, what is brand Oregon, right? And there is an element of worry about that in the sense of, um, I think the Australians, especially Australians in America, went off with, with brand Australia in a certain direction that now makes it really difficult for other parts of Australia to sell in America, right? Because Australia must be yellowtail kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, it is, and there's some astonishing wines made by small producers and big producers uh, in Australia, but it's really difficult because that was so powerful. And then I think, I think similarly in Oregon, one has to be wary going forward of of making sure that the story is is diverse enough to reflect how diverse this place is, and not let one thing become sort of like the dominant story. Mm -hmm. That's really dangerous. Uh, in 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 the way that you know, even Pinot Noir is dangerous, right? You can't. Oregon is not just Pinot Noir. Far from it. In fact, Oregon is so much more potentially so much more than Pinot. If you take the whole of Oregon from north to south, right? It's literally France. Right? Literally anything that happens in France can happen in Oregon, not Burgundy, the whole of France, right? And um, to to tell that story and develop in that way. I think would be nice, um, but I mean, just a personal opinion. Um, I have no scale or in any way, shape, or form, be able to affect that. Um, but the, the, that would be nice, rather than focus on 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 a single a single idea or a single thing, which is really dangerous because you know you have no idea where that is going to go, uh, and it can go you know, in, in, in the wrong way. So we've talked a little bit about the future here already, but I'm curious as you look ahead for yourself and the project here, you mentioned long-term generational project. Um, are there things on the horizon that you're looking forward to? Are there milestones coming up for you here uh, with this project? What, what's, what's the next kind of thing you're looking forward to? The first vintage way is all grapes from here. That's it. Um, so uh, every, every year now, um, I have more grapes from here that goes into this blend. At some point, right now it still says Eola Amity. At some points, I can't say that anymore, and I have to say Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. That would be a big day, right? So, and then from that point onwards, you know, the day when I actually say, you know, Shehila Mountains, then that is a really big day. That's when all the fruit sort of comes from here. Um, I don't know when. I mean, people ask, like, literally, the whole point of the exercise is I don't know when, right? And, and uh, um, I don't know, this year, um, Still, it will still say you're So it hasn't reached that sort of tipping point. Um, but as each year go by, more and more will be, and then and then the day will come when it's all here. So that's the that's the goal. Yeah. That seems like that would be hard to be patient. How 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 do you how do you handle <laughs> I have no that? No choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I I think uh, one having children. So there is, there is, there is <laughs> this is now a, a part of my life. There's another part, right, that, that takes, you know, so I think having children definitely helps. Um, 
there is a there is no choice part of it. This is why, right? And if this is an issue, then don't be in why because you have no choice. This is it. Okay. Um, granted, you can speed this up if you don't do what I'm doing, right? Um, but if that's your choice, fine. But if you're really interested in what doing it this way, you have no choice. So I think that's how I kind of handle it. Plus, back to uh, back to right back to right at the beginning about sort of thinking of this in a sort of more academic way. As as you go, the, the process itself is fascinating, right? So it's not a question of being patient and nothing is happening. It's only patient in that I cannot produce a bottle. Actually, I can produce, but I can't produce a hundred cases with the grapes tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But along the way, there are endless things to think about, right? And an endless thing to exp- you know, to observe and and to think about. Um, so at no point am I bored or run out of things to do, right? So I am constantly engaged. There are constantly lots of things to do. Um, the only thing that is not happening immediately is having you know four tons of grain next year. That's not going to happen, or, or, or next year actually. That that we have to wait. Everything else is, in fact, it's the, almost the other way around. I wish there were weeks when nothing was going on. You know, it's like there's nothing that I have to worry about or think about or do. I I achieve about a third of what I plan to do every year. You know, it's like there is an enormous amount of stuff that needs to be worked through. Not least because I'm doing this for the very first time. I'm first generation. You know, I, there, there's no legacy thing that I can lean on um, to help steer the direction. It's literally a blank piece of paper. On that note, I'm I'm curious what your family thinks of your endeavor. Ah, yes. Um, uh, goodness, this is on camera. Isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't have to be. Right. Um, I think the patient question definitely applies to them. Right. And and in very in a very serious way, so like it's like because. 99% of what I think they're not aware of because it's, it's my it's a really personal thing dealing with this and so in terms of communication they don't see so much of it that they see me sort of disappearing right? and, and, and rather than being able to understand the nuance of everything whereas and, and, and you know there is there is no sort of like a monthly result so obviously, when when we when, we, when this uh, arrived and the the activity around selling this and the response from the market, that was good. That 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 basically was a, a milestone that everybody could see and everybody could understand. And then we've disappeared again, right? It's like now now there's going to be a period as as the sort of response to this sort of dies down uh, before the next vintage comes into the market. Then um, you sort of disappear. Obviously, they've been supportive. Otherwise, I won't be able to do this, right? Um, uh, and that's sort of from uh, that's my wife part of it is that, and then sort of my extended family. Um, oh, they're just so they're used to doing things. I mean, like I said, I come from I come from an academic family. Going into investment banking is even more of a stretch than this, right? And then what, what? I mean, no, nobody in my family understands that part of the world so they're used to me just sort of doing different things um, and and have been have been very supportive really 
it helps. It helps that this first vintage went well. Mm-hmm. Clearly, mm-hmm. you know, if I had a hundred cases of wine still in the warehouse, then yeah, then this is going to be difficult. I think, I think the fact that this is, broadly speaking, very well received, I think it's good. Right. That's all the questions that I have for okay. you today. Is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? Nothing I can think of. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you. Fantastic interview. Thank you for your time. And fantastic uh, refreshments with our interview and a fantastic view. And uh, we really appreciate your time, your stories. You're welcome. More than welcome. We'll let you off the hook. Thank you so much. (laughs) There you are. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.